Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we're sponsored by our friends at NetSuite. Visit netsuite.com slash different. And our friends at Splunk at splunk.com, the leaders in data to everything, splunk.com slash D to E. And also want to say thank you to our friends at Squadcast. They are the podcast platform we use. I also want to say thank you off the top to our producer, Jason DeFilippo. Not only, in my opinion, is he uh, the GOAT, the greatest of all time in podcast production. He's uh, a dear friend and someone that um, I appreciate tremendously. And I want to thank him for um, uh, handling the intro outros uh, last week and taking care of the podcast while I was out. Uh, and uh, I'll say more about this in our next episode. Um, with We have a, actually a pretty stunning and surprising and, dare I say, different episode coming next with Pastor David Ferguson. Um, he's a, a pastor uh, in a Baptist pastor in Illinois near Chicago, and we have an extraordinary conversation. Um, and that'll be the next episode coming up later this week. And I'll talk more about the tragedy that my family is dealing with right now. And um, I just want to say that um, we are going through an extraordinarily difficult time. And if you and your family are going through some kind of huge difficulty right now, I just want you to know that I'm thinking about you. And I want you to know that I know how challenging life can be. And I also want to say thank you to each and every person who's reached out, sent email, uh, reached out on social media to, um, to be kind to, uh, to me right now. Um, because in times of when you're walking through fire, when people are kind to you, I've learned a lot about that over the last 10 or 11 months. So I just want to thank everybody for that. And if by chance you have sent a kind email or tweet or LinkedIn or something, and I have not been able to get back to you, please know that I'm seeing almost everything right now, um, but I don't have a, a lot of time because we are, in, um, we are in a tough, tough situation, and it's all hands on deck in my family to deal with that situation. All right, today um, we have a, an incredible episode with a great friend, a guy I've known for years. He's the world's number one tech analyst. His name is Ray Wong, and he's the founder of Constellation Research. He's the author of a spectacular book, big-time bestseller called Disrupting Digital Business. And on this episode, we talk about what's going on with C-19. Um, is C-19 a bioweapon, and what's going on with bioweapons? We get raised thoughts on what's going on with uh, tech's digital giants. And he's been uh, appearing a ton on TV lately, talking about the digital giants, where they're going as companies, where he thinks their stocks are going. And he gives you some stock tips uh, today. We talk about the future of enterprise tech and much, much more. Also, pay special attention to raise thoughts on cyber ransomware gangs. All right. As Joey Ramone said, hey, ho, let's go. Okay, so Ray, you're the world's number one tech analyst. What the F's going on in the world? <laughs> you know, that's a great question. Uh, there's a lot going on. I mean, if you really thought through what's been happening, we've got 
a series of crises, right? We've got this bioweapons crisis or COVID-19 in one way to look at it. You know, we've got an attack on the US dollar. We've got insider threats coming with like massive cyber ransoms and ransomware gangs popping up everywhere. And, you know, and, and we're all still trying to make a living and stay healthy. <laughs> so it's a little bit messy. So I was trying to write down your list as you were talking. You started, I think the first thing you said was bioweapon. I did. And so is C-19 a bioweapon? I don't know. Um, I think a lot of people are starting to find markers and starting to realize that this not, might not be as naturally occurring as people believe uh, or are being led to believe in, in the traditional sense of naturally occurring. Um, and, and I think that's, that's one of the things that people are starting to investigate. So, you know, I know you have some... Um I was going to say tentacles, but that makes it sound maybe more evil than I mean it to mean. You, you, you have a lot of relationships in China and frankly around the world. And you go to all the big ding dong think tank things where all the super ding dong smart people go and you speak at all the big things and all that shit. So you know some people. Yes. Do the smart people, you know, think this is a bioweapon? I think they're afraid to say so, um, but I think they believe that while it might be naturally occurring, there are markers inside the uh, genetic code that one would say, hmm, that's kind of odd that this is here. Uh, so I think that's part of it. And then I think the other part of it is people understand the, you know, the, the culture in Wuhan. Wuhan was kind of a wild west. So people kind of push the limits on rules in general. I mean, it's the capital for where fentanyl production in the world is, right? It's, you know, folks there smoke like chimneys, like crazy. I mean, they, they live life to the extreme. I mean, that's, that's kind of Wuhan, right? So I think, you know, when people think about what's going on, I think that's one of the things that people are examining. They're trying to figure out, they're studying the genetic markers. They're trying to understand the mutations. They're trying to understand why they're different strains. I think all that's going to come out in the next six months. Hmm. And look, this may sound like a stupid or naive question, but it's on my mind. And I'm curious as to your answer. Do you have any sense, you know, when a crime's committed, it feels natural to go to motive. And so um, do you have any sense why the Chinese would want to create a, a bioweapon and unleash it not only on the world, but their own people? I don't think it's that. I really don't. I don't think um, that the intent was to unleash it on their people and the world. I, I would go back to what we talked about last time. I still believe it's a safety protocol. It's an accident, but we are in the age of bioweapons. Um, now that everyone knows what the impact of you know something like a COVID-19 could be, uh, everyone's thinking about, hey, do we have offensive or defensive capabilities? And that thought crosses through every government's mind as to, you know, what's required, uh, what's within the limits, what have treaties have we signed. So I don't think it was intentional. I think the safety protocols were definitely broken. Um, I think it's not necessarily uh, something they were planning to unleash, uh, but it was something that they were studying. Hmm. And so, you know, and I've heard some people say this, and look, I'm a generally an interested party when it comes to conspiracy theories. I at least want to hear them. And so I have heard the theory that um, we are facing down a future where governments build bioweapons and pre-build the vaccine and somehow find a way to protect their own people while um, trying to kill a whole bunch of others of us. Is that science fiction or is that something that we're seeing or is that something that's coming or or just what's your reaction to that 
you know, there are different gradations. I think that we've had the capabilities to engineer those types of bioweapons. Uh, I don't know. I don't think anyone can confirm or deny whether they exist. Uh, but you know that there are certain genetic traces, genetic markers. If you are going for certain types of characteristics or traits, maybe people with black hair or maybe people who have O blood type, uh, those things are pretty easy to go after. I don't know if these things have been ruled out in treaties. I thought they were, unless we are skirting the edge of every single bioweapons treaty we have out there. So, but I know, I know the scenario has been thought through, like people have gone through the war gaming for these types of scenarios, you know, how to prevent these, you know, bioweapon scenarios and how to build offensive capabilities. So uh, we need to pay close attention to this. Uh, we may be seeing more of this. I think so. And, and, and we may be seeing it for nefarious reasons. We have. I mean, there's a United Nations bioweapons convention that was signed in, you know, 1972. I mean, that's way, way back. And I think the types of bioweapons they were envisioning are very different than these. I mean, it was anthrax, right? There weren't genetic mutations of flus that they were thinking about because we didn't have CRISPR technology. We didn't have some of the other techniques that we have today. And, and so I think that was a little bit different. I mean, but, you know, that, that, that convention is old. I, I think the world needs to convene and then re-sign some new treaty to say this is ridiculous, right? We, this is not something we want out there. So we need to get real focused on bioweapons going forward. Oh, we definitely have to. I mean, look, the reason I say these programs have been going on for some time, I mean, look, the, the Soviet Union back in the 1920s had a bioweapon program. So it's, this is nothing new. I mean, 100 years ago, there were bioweapon programs in, in the Red Army. Fascinating. Now, I think the, one of the other things you, you talked about was the dollar. And so um, did you say there's an attack or what, what, what do you see going on with our dollar other than we're manufacturing lots more of them? Than we used to? <laughs> you know, so one of the interesting things is the dollar is the world's biggest Ponzi scheme. Uh, it is the most interesting Ponzi scheme. We just keep printing dollars and people just keep saying, oh, that's great. You know, and, and I, I, you know, as the reserve currency, I guess you get to do that. And, you know, with quantify, you know, quantitative easing, you know, we, we're definitely printing a lot more dollars out there and every country is doing the same just to keep afloat for, for monetary policy. But, you know, the reason that there's an attack on the dollar is for that reason. Uh, that's part of the reason cryptocurrency picked up. You know, China's launching their cryptocurrency to go along with the Belt and Road Initiative. And part of that is so that, you know, other they may be the reserve currency one day, right? The, the Russians and the Saudis and the Chinese are like, why are everything denominated in dollars for oil, right? The Saudis, think about it, like a, a barrel of oil at $40 today, you know, I mean, $40 in 1970 might have been worth, you know, like, I don't know, $400 today. I mean, it's $40 is less than that $400. It's a mess. So, And as it relates to the dollar, you know, I've heard a compelling case for deflation, and devaluing the dollar and a quote-unquote currency crisis. Do you have any of these concerns? I think at the moment, the world isn't thinking about that. Uh, there's been a shift to moving to what people call modern monetary theory. I think that's one end of the spectrum saying you can keep printing dollars and nothing bad will happen. On the other end, we've got folks pushing for the gold standard, uh, the folks that believe that you, you know that's really important to make sure you have balanced budgets. I think most governments have taken the easy route saying, okay, you know, we, we don't care. We'll even get to negative interest rates. Uh, and, and I think that's dangerous. I mean, take the same thing, like, you know, $40 in 1970. How the, sorry to interrupt you, Ray, but 
I didn't spend any, I, you know, you spent time in school. I didn't. How the fuck do negative interest rates <laughs> it's, work? It's crazy. It's like you put a hundred dollars in the bank in Japan or hundred yen in Japan. You get like 99 back in two years. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, you know, like, and we had this situation with oil, the price of oil a little while ago here where it was like, are, are people gonna, now going to start paying you to take the oil? Because remember when there was did. nowhere they to did. store all <laughs> the oil? Take the oil. And, and it's like, well, how come they're not paying me at the pump to take the shit <laughs> off their hands? Because I don't have a tanker. There's nowhere to store that stuff, right? Right. If we'd had tankers, we could have got all kinds of free oil there a little while ago. You and I could have been stockpiling oil and hedging it, but there's a, there wasn't a single tanker left in the world to be able to do that. <laughs> so, I mean, it's kind of a. <laughs> we had a run on tankers. People were worried about toilet paper. It was tankers. It's tankers, man. I mean, forget the TP. <laughs> it's like, no. But, but I mean, we're back to this, right? Like $40 in 1970 is worth 265 in 2020. Right. And your barrel of oil, I mean, think about the depreciation. I mean, that's crazy. Right. Your, your oil, a, ga- I mean, a gallon of gas is cheaper than milk at this moment. Right. And that, that's just messed up. <laughs> so, what? Well, yeah. And there's all kinds of, like, de- we have deflation everywhere. Right. We have home prices and, 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 and rents coming down in San Francisco. Right. I mean, we haven't seen that since the no. Great Recession. And we're seeing it in a, in a very unusual way. And uh, some of the car companies are in trouble. Obviously not Tesla. We can talk about Tesla if you want. But like there's there's just a lot of weird dislocation in the economy. It is. We're seeing some massive shifts. And, and, and it's really the attack on the dollar has been happening for some time. And it's as if everybody's everybody that's not in favor of the dollar being the world's reserve currency is finding a way to chip at the dollar. You know, whether it's through, you know, MMT or whether it's through, you know, thinking about crypto or whether it's through, you know, other mechanisms of, you know, pricing, right? Trying to get commodities priced in other types of currencies. Now, this would have continued, right? Had, had you know, if we hadn't had the coronavirus pandemic, you know, China would have been on its way trying to make a case for itself to be the world's reserve currency. Mm-hmm. But part of being the world's reserve currency is you kind of have to trust the government. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, that, that case for doing that is kind of blown out of the water, at least for the next couple of years. But they are pushing hard on cryptocurrencies, which they are trading with a lot of their partners, including Russia. Hmm. Do you have any sense for how much uh, crypto trading is going on between China and Russia? I don't know yet. I probably have to look that up. Um, but I know that they started that trade uh, about a month ago. And what do you, what do you think the implications or ramifications of a uh, 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 some meaningful percentage of trade between Russia and China being crypto would be or could be? I think that could be up to 30 to 40 percent, uh, given the fact that way that Russia and China trade, right? China China is a big importer for a lot of uh, you know Russian agriculture, uh, Russian technologies, right? And I think China has a manufacturing trade back to Russia as well. So. And and what do you think the implications of that that high a percentage of their trade being crypto? How would that? How do you how do you see that playing out over time? I would say that they're trying to make sure that that's a currency people can use as an alternative to the dollar mm-hmm. and the dollar do- dominance. Uh, and if they do succeed in doing that, they could start picking up additional countries. And over time, what that would do is that would sink the dollar, and the dollar would become a junk currency. Um, given how much it's in print, but that's going to take a long time. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. So, I mean, this Russian-Chinese cryptocurrency alliance is 
you know, they're trying to get other folks to do it like Brazil, uh, India, you know, but you know, that little skirmish with India kind of killed that. And, <laughs> and Brazil's a little busy at the moment trying to fight the coronavirus. So it's going to take a little bit. And you don't think it's uh, and you think the primary motivation, and this may be obvious, but the primary motivation is to have a different world currency that becomes, uh, becomes the standard and ultimately unseats the U S dollar. Yeah. That's, that's what the game is. Yeah. The game is to unseat the U S dollar. Uh, and, and that would have disaster consequences for us, but you know, it's a warning to us for not overprinting on the dollar and, and basically deflating the rest of the, you know, deflating our currencies. The other thing I wonder is of course, uh, crypto transactions are, I don't know what the right sort of metaphor or analogy would be, but they're, they're more in the dark, more hidden than a regular bank transaction. Right. And that's part of the appeal. And so if, a major percentage of the economics around, uh, around the trading between Russia and China are now sort of darker or harder to track or harder to see or or just frankly outside of the, let's call it normal or traditional monetary system. What do you think the impact of just that sort of lack of transparency or lessening of the transparency around the trade, what, what does that mean? Oh, we wouldn't be able to figure out how terrorist cells are being financed, how weapons purchases are being made. Uh, you know, a lot of that would be covered up uh, because only the person, only the country that's issuing that currency would be able to have that information. China's basically trying to do that so that they can, you know, drop this anywhere from, you know, Russia to Djibouti to, you know, any, anywhere that they're trying to go. And by doing that, you know, they, they have an understanding of like, you know, currency manipulation for exchange rates, right? They're basically pushing digital payments everywhere so that they have that economic information, that insight as well. I mean, so they're building signal intelligence through their digital currencies. And what do you think the U.S. should do now vis-a-vis uh, -vis monetary policy around Bitcoin? I don't know. It's about Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of those cryptos. I think the U.S. probably has to issue its own cryptocurrency at some point in time. You know, there's, you know, they, something that's dollar based or less dollar based that's based towards an asset like gold or platinum or something in that area as, as kind of a tracking currency to the dollar as a kind of a way to start. Canada has a really good cryptocurrency that, you know, in terms of the way it was designed in terms of the safety and the privacy and, and the security behind it, it might be something that the U.S. you know takes advantage of. You know, Canada has also been really good at issuing paper currencies, if you know, all, all the stuff with the plastic and the stripes in between all the security measures that's used around the world. I mean, it's one of the most advanced currency issuers you know, in terms of the technology of a currency. Those so. crafty Canadians. <laughs> of course, right? You can't rip this. You can't rip my Canadian dollar. <laughs> so <no. laughs> get a loony and a toonie. I don't know. But you can't rip the Canadian dollar. What about all this? You said to tie it. Yeah, the... Do you got to love? Well, I remember when the two dollar coin came out, right? Of course, that the one dollar coin's the loony uh, because it's got a loon on it. And there was this discussion in Canada about what to call the two dollar coin, and the debate was: should we call it a toonie? And that's ultimately what won. Or did you ever hear this one? The tabloon. <laughs> Tabloon. I know. I've never heard that <laughs> for a while. I don't know who was floating to bloom, but uh, to loom, but that's what they were floating. <laughs> oh my! So anyway, it's it's the toonie. The other the thing about that though, it drives me nuts to have a a, a front pocket jangling, jingling full of change. I uh, I don't know. I think I I prefer paper money, but that's that's just me. 
<laughs> you know, it, it just reminds me of when we're kids, like we're playing arcade games, right? And you're looking for quarters. Yeah. Right? So yeah. You well. try to find like you know, the, the other currency that's close enough to the quarters so you can shove it into the machine. <laughs> Toonie was a bad idea. So, but uh, <laughs> Toonie. Yeah. Yeah. But hey, cars, right? You're talking about cars. Cars. Yeah. What's going on with cars? And car sales are effed up and, and Tesla's market cap is expanding by a zillion dollars a moment. And, <laughs> You know, it's a great question. I mean, what's what I see with Tesla is interesting. Like I've said this before publicly, you know, Tesla at $700 a share is undervalued, you know, as overvalued as a car company, right? Tesla at 1800 is undervalued as a, a you know, big data digital giant. Um, and, and it really depends once you understand where the business model is going, right? As a car company, you're like, eh, okay, big deal. But once you get full self-driving, which they call FSD, once you get to full self-driving, you're you can do a million things. You can take out Uber. You can be a logistics company. You can start figuring out your own insurance because you have better underwriting rates. You know how people are driving and you're tracking all that data. And so suddenly Tesla is not a car company. It's a little bit more. It's an energy exchange, right? Maybe I, I plug my battery in back into the grid and I saw it back to my neighbor in terms of the power because they also have the solar part of the business. And so the possibilities for what Tesla can do and, and their track record for actually delivering against those possibilities makes it kind of interesting, which is why, you know, mm -hmm. at $1,800 a share, it still may be undervalued. Well, and the other thing I wonder a lot about, of course, is one would imagine that we're in the very, very early innings of uh, lithium battery technology innovation. And so if you say things over time are more and more likely to be electric or electrified <laughs> and the need for better batteries, safer batteries, longer battery life, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to increase over time. And I'm not an expert in this area, but it seems logical. Then they could have a, who knows what size market cap company sitting inside of Tesla. If, if they become the AWS of battery technology, you know, are they as important as Intel was back in the old days of the PC? Or I, I don't know, is that, that, that seems like a big area, but what do you think? No, you're right. I mean, and 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 so just on the technology of batteries is one one place that you know people are seeing where these future storage needs are. And Tesla's ahead, right? They take commodity lithium ion batteries, stack them all together, but it's the software that allows you to do that fast charging, you know, that controlled discharge that occurs in a battery. And and I think that's that's one of the things. Now there are other technologies that are moving on, and, and you notice how Tesla actually did a deal with LG Chem uh, to actually use their batteries going forward. It's the software technology that becomes important, right? How they actually use the batteries is what Tesla's been good at. You know, the, the rest of it's commoditized, but we will see other things beyond lithium ion, right? And, and some of the areas that are, that are going to happen beyond lithium ion are these sodium sulfur batteries. And these things last longer, right? They have like 15-year lifespans uh, in general. You're going to see lithium metal type batteries, and it's because it's got a better energy density pack in them. And because of that energy density pack, that allows them to do different things, right? And there's also fluorine ion batteries that are popping up as well. So it's 10 times the density of a lithium ion battery that's going to pop, pop wow. into place. But these things do blow up, remember? So, so you're, you're trying to make sure like, you know, you're going to well, crash. That. <laughs> Boom, you know, it's like, whoops. So, right. And there's also graphene supercapacitors that are popping up that you know you know they don't have the density right but they're super lightweight and they charge really quickly so a lot of these things are happening right now and, and you're seeing like you know places like caltech and mit and you know stanford all working on these you know different types of technologies now you've been uh, pretty active lately uh ray in the media and the press on tv talking about some of the bigger tech companies talking about where you think 
their stocks are going and you, you have some provocative and maybe even counterintuitive positions on on some of the leading tech companies and particularly their values and obviously you just mentioned Tesla you know where's your head at on some of these big tech companies and and where you think these stocks are going so a lot of it is coming from my research we're looking at this concept around digital giants and what makes them digital giants and we've gone back and we look and it's you know, you got to have hundreds of millions of users. That, that's the first part. So big membership bases. The second part is you understand the importance of what we call decision velocity. The reason that you can make decisions faster. And it's partly signal intelligence. It's the automation of information. It's machine learning and AI, right? So if you can make decisions faster than someone else, you're ahead of the curve, right? And so machines can make a decision like hundreds of decisions in a second, right? A human might be able to make a decision in a minute, but it'll take you a whole day to get through your governance structure in your company, right? So you already lost, right? So, so you see that kind of an action. And then it's really about having multi-sided networks. Those multi-sided networks, like a demand side, supply side, I mean, these things are very important because as you light up each one of these networks, the information on those networks and the interactions are powering all that signal intelligence, uh, and then a couple other things are important. It's really having a long-term mindset. And if you don't have that, you're kind of screwed. And then you got to have a bunch of digital monetization models, whether it's ad or search or services or membership or subscriptions. And so that fits the bill for what we call the trillion dollar gamma trade. And these are companies that are worth a trillion dollars in market cap, Google, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, and also works for a lot of the FANG stocks, uh, your typical Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, right? So depending on how you look at that trade. So Netflix, of course, poster child for, you know, stay at home, you know, they're doing really well, but, you know, they, they have one monetization model, which is really just memberships. And, and it's interesting. They're doing really well with that. And, you know, they've got the content, they've got, you know, all the subscribers, they got the subscriber growth and, and that makes them very valuable right now. The question is in a battle for content and they're spending three, four billion on content, you know, can they produce enough interesting content to keep people watching for quite some time? And, and the short answer is they've done a good job. And, and that's what makes them very powerful. Mm -hmm. But the challengers are incredible in streaming, right? You've got Disney, you've got Peacock, you've got, you know, Apple, you've got Amazon Prime, right? You've got Hulu. All these folks are coming after this market because they realize distribution costs are minimal. Uh, it's really a content game. And so how do we get content network technology to come together? And so you've seen these value chains collapse comms, media, entertainment, technology, it's really the same value chain, right? And so mm. these companies have been aggregating these pieces to get there. And Netflix on its own, just, you know, it's doing a great job as, as, as basically a one-trick pony. And so I like Netflix. I think it's going to get, you know, pretty far up the battle. You know, you could be like 520, you could be 550 a share, but that's not the point. I'm not offering stock advice. Please don't take my advice and consult your legal people. Um, but the point being is, you know, <laughs> consult your shaman, doctor, mother, shaman, legal counselor. <laughs> so, but, but the point being is like, you know, these stocks are going to do really well in that single business model, but they've got to invent other monetization models for them to continue to grow. Right. And it might be product placements. They're not going to do ads, but maybe in their shows that product placements becomes one line item. Maybe they license gear for some of the stuff that happens, it gets into licensing and IP business. And when they do that, they're going to be worth even more. They haven't even started that conversation. It's not like people are going around getting like, you know, Homeland t-shirts or, you know, Tiger King stuff, but they started to. Right. right? But once they get right. into that licensing business, 
oh my, I mean, that's incredible given the amount of original content they put together. So we haven't even factored that part into their valuation. Just as a side note, I've been amazed by the number of young people wearing Friends t-shirts lately. It seems like, I don't know that why I'm noticing this, but it's like Friends is having this renaissance with you know, uh, uh, young teens, <laughs> young teens outside the U.S. even more so. Right? Yeah, I mean it's crazy. I mean you see them everywhere. It pops up. I mean the Friends logo is being used in some other you know ads, and you're just like, oh, that's kind of interesting. So, but yeah, right. So it's, it's like that. And, and when you get down to the monetization models, I mean the best at it is Amazon, right? I mean that's why they're doing so well. I mean you have a Prime membership, you can stream video on Amazon, you can buy a device with Alexa, you can get onto the cloud and use their cloud computing resources, you can get into commerce. They have a logistics network unlike any others for last mile delivery. They've got the drone pieces that they're doing, right? There's I mean so so they've basically monetized on ads. I mean they're doing almost 12 billion dollars in ads, which is makes them the third largest digital ad competitor after Google and Facebook. Well, and of course, they're a massive search engine unto themselves, right? Exactly. They've got search. They've got ads. They've got the ability to do digital goods and services. They've got subscriptions and they've got membership, right? That's all the monetization models. And the other thing that they've done that that knocks me over, Ray, is if you look at books where they started, they've literally innovated the entire chain, right? So, of course, they start with physical books through the FedEx and the Post and the like, right? But if you look at where they are today, they've got the category dominating um, book reader in the Kindle, right? And then you go through the entire value chain, and I believe you tell me if I'm if I'm wrong. I believe they're the biggest book publisher in the world now because they're an independent self publishing platform. So from the creators of the books to the consumers of the books and everybody in between, they got the whole fucking value chain. They do. They're vertically integrated value chains across all digital monetization models. Most people don't understand that, right? I mean, we're watching like in the background, I've got these big tech folks being questioned by you know the antitrust community of like the uh, Congress. And I'm just laughing my head off. Like none of these folks understand the business model. I mean, the business model is basically a completely vertically integrated digital monetization model around people. <laughs> it works. <laughs> so unbelievable uh, job. Now, you also mentioned earlier, Ray, uh, cyber ransom. And am I wrong here? This hack that happened uh, where major, major high profile folks, their Twitters are hacked and then people are, are trying to get them people are trying to get Bitcoin sent to them and it, it actually worked for at least a, a moment in time here. Uh, this Was this an unusual situation? No, um, I, I don't have security clearance and I'm not privy to a certain amount of information, but it also allows me to make some uh, comments that I, I think people should understand. Uh, there are ransomware gangs. There are five, six major ransomware gangs. Uh, and, and that's one part of the spectrum in terms of what's been going on. People phishing attacks, DDoS attacks, all this stuff has been happening over the last seven to eight weeks, very intensified. Uh, that's one part of it. But the second part is the scary piece. We have insider threats, people inside companies that have either been placed, recruited, or turned. I'll say that again. They've been placed, recruited, or turned to work against the, the U.S., the country, or a corporation. What? 
And and this so we have cyber ransom spies going to work for government agencies and or corporations with the foreign government agencies, uh, whether knowingly or unknowingly, they have been told that, hey, if you just stick the stick into the drive over here uh, for a bunch of zero day vulnerabilities, which we've packaged together very well, uh, you can take out entire networks. Uh, and you can do your part, you know, in part of the revolution, whatever revolution you're in. And, and I say it facetiously, but it's real. People have emails that say, Hey, you know, you know, that brother you had in Shanghai, he might be missing next week if you don't help me. Or hey, by the way, we got this great position for you in Hangzhou at a famous tech company. All you need to do is these three things or don't love your country. You think the country's going to crap. Come join us. You can be part of the revolution and take down these evil big tech companies, even though you work there. Uh, so, so these things are actually happening. There are emails. There are things we've talked to clients about this and, and it's real. And, and people need to understand that, you know, there's an insider threat that's happening as well. And so the ransomware gangs, the insider threat that's going on and the hacking from foreign countries are all happening at the same time, making this one of the most crazy cyber wars that we've seen in a while. And, and we've all but declared a real digital cyber war with China uh, as part of the trade agreements. And, and we're seeing that right now. My my mind's kind of going. There are these you you call them cyber ransom gangs. Is that what you call them? They're ransomware gangs. I mean, there are some major ransomware gangs that people might not know. It's like, hey, we've got the entire you know bonus pool. You know, you see that Excel file with you know company bonus on it, right? That's part of that, right? I mean, that's part of the list mm. of gangs that that are out there. Right. I mean, and so if I'm a if I'm a CISO, a chief security officer, CIO, uh, you know, if I'm responsible for infrastructure, um, I now got to be focused on people who intentionally join my organization with the purpose of doing this nefarious shit. You do. I mean, there's a bunch of these ransomware gangs floating around recruiting folks and then and they pay good money. So excellent. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, okay. What about, what about the, example, what the right? killer like, hornets or the devil hornets or what the fuck were they called those things? <laughs> yeah, let me give you let me give you an example, right? So, so sometime in June, early June, right? A truck, and I'm going to look this up online, right? So, I mean, I, I think truck hits Comcast uh, in Chicago, right? So, so a truck traveling in an easement close to vehicles struck Comcast network on the south side of Chicago and did significant damage, which caused the outage, said Jack Siegel, vice president of communications for the greater Chicago region. Really? Really? Like a truck hitting an easement took out the entire Chicago Internet and New York? I want to see this truck or I want to see this easement. Like, how is that even possible? I mean, this is freaking like like, who comes up with this crap? I mean, it just it just makes you laugh. Right now, if it happened and I hope no one's hurt and I hope no one's injured and all the usual, you know, thing caveats. But but a truck can't take out the entire network. Right. T-Mobile's network slowly down. Uh, you know, I don't know what happened. You know, all, all these outages that are going on. The internet was running slow one day, right? I mean, we lost U.S. military sub-secrets, you know, like a couple days later, right? Two days into the George Floyd protests, you know, the Minnesota State Senate was held for ransomware. I mean, these are coordinated attacks. <laughs> you can't just make wow. this stuff up or do it randomly. Yeah, it's, uh, there's some crazy... Crazy, crazy shit going on right now. I don't know. What about those UFOs, Chris? <laughs> While we're at it. <laughs> well, well, this is another thing on the UFO. Like, 
Am I wrong? Am I reading this wrong? But we essentially have the federal government of the United States now admitting, yes, there's UFOs. <laughs> right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I mean you got to give it that. You got to hand it to Senator Marco Rubio on that one. He's been chasing this one for a while. People thought he was a nut job on this and it's real. Right. I mean, I know. And we're seeing all these stories. And what's the guy who. Bob Lazar. Yeah, yeah, that's. And now, you know, this guy came out. I don't know. I I don't know all the details. 20, 30 years ago, people thought he was crazy. (laughs) Yeah. But now lots of people are validating him and so forth and so on. And and so I don't know. It seems like the U.S. government is admitting to UFOs. Yeah. And and then you saw the guy that the U.S. Navy pilot who was following the Tic Tac, you know, like. It's like, yeah, this thing doesn't, this thing defies all physics and laws. And it's, well, and that guy's come public. Yeah, that guy's gone public. Yeah, well, and, and I, I believe, I forget which podcast it was. I heard a podcast with the Air Force pilot who saw the Tic Tac. Yep. And yep. he described in detail what it did. And this was off the coast of San Diego. Am I remembering this right? I think it was something like that. So Let's Chad Underwood. Chad Underwood. That's his name. That's the pilot who I'm remembering? I think so. Navy pilot who filmed the Tic Tac UFO, Chad Underwood. Yeah, Chad Underwood. There he is. This is New York Magazine. It happened November 10th, 2004 off San Clemente. So, yeah. There you go. It wasn't behaving by the normal laws of physics. (laughs) Yeah, and I I heard him interviewed somewhere. And so, ta-da, UFOs. (laughs) Dude, we are we are hitting every freaking conspiracy theory today. We're hitting we're hitting them all. Yeah, it's it's fucking crazy. And so, uh, all right, let's go. Let's go more crazy. The, 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 we're in the middle of the or towards the end now, the back end of the craziest federal election election in in modern history. And so, what's your view of? The cyber hacking of the social media manipulation of voter fraud of mail in vo- all the stuff around the election. <laughs> what what do you think's going on? First of all, I think this is going to be the craziest election. If no matter who you're voting for, and I really don't have a preference on who you vote for, you know, just vote. You know, vote your conscience. Uh, this is going to be one of the craziest elections by all means. People are sitting home. They are mad. They can't do anything. They're out of a job. People want to do something. Mail-in ballots are going to create some very interesting thing. I just saw the poll from the Cato Institute. You know, 62% of people that are being polled, you know, are afraid to say anything. So I'm not sure how I can validate that poll, but <laughs> I mean, it's kind of funny, right? <laughs> and I was like, 62% of the people say they have political views that they're afraid to talk I, I about. I just wonder what these polls like does, does somebody just write you know just roll a giant fatty and open a bottle of scotch and just say let's make some shit up and put out a press release <laughs> you know I, I think the polling industry is a little a little harmed at the moment but, you know. well look at how wrong the polls were in the last federal election i mean or yeah was, or on brexit or on like a lot of things <laughs> right and they come up with all these theories after the fact right that like oh well you know, there were all these Trump supporters who didn't want to admit to the pollster that they were Trump supporters. You know, there's some truth to that. Well, maybe. But I've been hearing that apparently a lot of the polls now are also automated. So it's like you're going to lie to the automated poll bot that you love the current president and you plan to vote for him again. I don't know. Maybe you are. I don't know. 
<laughs> the polls are interesting. Depending on what channels you watch, like the polls ask different questions and they they feed in different people into the polling mix. And it, it's interesting. I, I think some polls are just fabricated for public opinion. Some polls are actually being done to actually really understand public opinion instead of sway public opinion. Uh, and, and, and some polling is just faulty. I, I'll give you an example, right? This one is, this one like, you know, like 2016 election, you know, I look up at the Pennsylvania primary. I grew up in Pennsylvania and in the Pennsylvania primary, like you can, you can vote regardless of what party you are for the other candidate. It's not one of those like closed primaries. It's open to everyone. Uh, and, and I think of some number like 680,000 Democrats voted for Trump in the primary. And I look at that and I'm like, oh, that's, that's, Really interesting. Six hundred eighty thousand Reagan Democrats showed up to vote. And I'm like, that's huge. And so I call up some people I know in different campaigns, and I say, you know, hey, where does how far does your polling data go back? And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, our, we've got a rich set of data. We go back to 1996. I'm thinking, oh, you are so effed. You are so effed, people. Um, your numbers are going to be so wrong because those are all my classmates I grew up with in Allentown, Pennsylvania, who just voted for Trump. And I'm like, your numbers are not in there. If you don't go back to 1984, 88, even 92, you don't even right. have a chance of being close. And, you know, hindsight. Well, yeah, the Reagan, the Reagan elections. Um, I mean, yeah, we, we, I, I, would th- I would have thought we would have wanted or needed a bigger uh, d- uh, data set that goes back further in time. They didn't go back far enough. <laughs> a lot of those polls are like, yeah, 20 years will be fine. <laughs> I mean, it's like, no, these people haven't voted in 40 dudes. <laughs> they're, they're voting now. So yeah. So you got that. And do you think Ray, the level of interference we're seeing from whether it's, uh, Russia or China or anyone else for that matter is, is how would you compare what we're seeing now and what you think we might see over the next, uh, you know, between now and November, uh, compared to uh, compared to uh, the last federal election, you know, I've been watching too much Homeland. I really don't know which side is creating the <laughs> interference. I mean, you know, are we doing our own? You're being influenced by the media, by <laughs> being influenced by Netflix. I don't know. Uh, no, I, I would say that. I, I look. I mean, by all means, if you're following the whole Russian dossier thing and dossier, like you know, and all the thing that was going on, like we didn't have that much Russian influence in the last election. I think Facebook ads, maybe Twitter, like what we're going to see in 2020 is massive amounts of influence. I don't know from where it could be us passing it off as Russian, you know, Chinese trying to pass it off as North Korean. Right. I mean, we don't know. Right. But either way, there's going to be massive disinformation campaigns going on all across the board, some funded by us, some funded by foreign powers. I think we need to be open to that fact. Now, once you have that in place, you, you have to understand, you know, will we be conditioned enough not to react uh, to those to those disinformation campaigns? I mean, there's a lot of it out there. I mean, it's not just between media. It's also all the social media. It's also, you know, all the chat groups and underground groups that are out there. So this is why this election is going to be very hard to figure out. So so that's just the front end of the election, you know, influencing opinion, influencing electors. Now, the second part that is scary is how are we conducting these elections? Now, for me, like, you know, I would hope mail-in ballot fraud is not there. Like people do absentee balloting and voting. But if I remember, I think there's few congressional elections in New York that still haven't been decided because they haven't figured out the mail-in ballots, right? Now that, that's scary, mm. right? Now the five, the five 
ballots that were converted from, you know, I don't know, Democrat to Republican in Pittsburgh by a male person, you know, that that's not going to change the election that much. Uh, but it's a question of like, you know, how do we guarantee the integrity of the election system? Everyone's trying to say like, it, it, everyone's going to cheat, everyone's going to cheat. And then, you know, whoever loses, it's because it was cheated. I mean, that's kind of a weird cop out for everyone. You know, so hmm. so I think we have to make sure that, you know, either we make the polling booth safer, we extend the hours so people can come out there or, you know, there's some kind of massive oversight on, you know, mail in. Um, some people are going to say, like, you know, there is no fraud, but, you know, it's it's hard to say. I mean, even in New York, I mean, there was like 800 million va- ballots that were, you know, set aside. Nobody knows what happened. Where did they go or how, how do you get that? And so there's some fraud risk. And if there's anything any pe- anyone can do is to try to eliminate all those excuses, right? And to make sure that the, integ- the voting process is has a level of integrity. I think that's probably the most important thing because we, we don't yeah. need that to drive us into civil war. It's like everybody wants us to get into civil war and, and we don't see that. Well, am I wrong here? Ever since the... Um debacle we had with uh al gore and uh uh, george w bush have we really come that far on improving our 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 state's ability to execute these elections safely uh securely uh do it in a way that 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 is available to the most people so that we're uh, enabling um, the most amount of uh turnout I don't know that we have. I'm not an expert in this area, but it, it, I have a question about that. <laughs> it, it's it's part of the quandary we have as as a nation, right? On on one hand, we want people to be able to, you know, we want everyone who's legally able to vote and allowed to vote to vote, and and sometimes we try to increase the number of people who can fit that category of who's eligible as a voter, uh, and then we have the battle around, you know, privacy. Right. You know, like, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, your vote's private, it's safe, like no one knows what it is. So it's anonymized. Right. So so that interesting battle is what's causing the problem because there's a lot of loopholes in between. So, uh, you know, take away the hanging chads of that election. I mean, that uh, was kind of weird, you know, like, okay, it's a mechanical failure. Let's go all digital, right? And then someone hacks the digital system. What do you, what do, you do? Right? Oh, well, let's print out paper right. ballots as a backup. <laughs> and so, you know, it, now we got to do just, both and try to triangulate them. We can't get one right. Let's get both of them wrong. I mean, but it's conflicted, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, I'm, re- I'm reading about like Patterson, New Jersey, and the fact that, you know, like 800 ballots, you know, like, you know, we're mail-in fraud or something. I mean, I don't know. I just think that with both parties, like massively looking at this issue, like they would keep each other in check, at least to say, hey, that's fraud. That's not fraud. Or let's, let's agree on a fair system. So I, I think the thing that, mm. if anything, like I'm most worried about right now is just the the way that everybody's being manipulated to fracture and and basically you know go against one another. It, it doesn't matter what it is in terms of countries or if it's like political parties or you know if it's just people different classes in society. I mean, there's a lot of momentum to tear us apart, and and that to me is the most hurtful thing that's going on in the country. I mean, if, if we can at least try to solve that, I mean, we we'd be further. We'd be actually putting our our efforts and abilities and resources to better use, but we just bent on killing each other at the moment. Well, I, I tweeted this out a while ago, the United States question mark. Like, <laughs> Who's the Russian that wrote that book? There's a Russian guy that wrote this book that, that said like the United, the United States of America or something. I, I don't know that one, but 
There's anyway, on these conspiracy theories. It is. The disunited states of America. Harry Turtle. The disunited states. So someone wrote something. Or was it Daniel Pink? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so. I think I think I thought Malcolm Gladwell and Daniel Pink write all that sort of shit. <laughs> but there's so let's go to these conspiracy theories for a second. Uh, so I saw this. Let me get the date here. July 23rd, 2020. Marketwatch.com, a reasonably credible, if not completely credible, business website. Yes? There's a story, the headline reads, almost half Republicans believe a debunked conspiracy theory about Bill Gates. And then the story starts by saying that there's a recent poll that said that 44% of Republicans say they believe that the Microsoft founder is plotting to use coronavirus vaccine to implant tracking devices on people. You know, you know, I saw that and I, I literally just, I skipped it. <laughs> I'm like, what the heck? So it's like the 5G rumors that are being floated around, right? I love that one. I, no, the joke <laughs> I've been saying is that Bill Gates has a Bigfoot farm and he has trained them to install the coronavirus misters on the 5G towers. That's how this is going to work. <laughs> so, I mean, right? Because if you were a Bigfoot, it would be easy for you to climb these towers. And so he just has to teach them how to put the corona misters on them. You totally got it wrong. It's the, the vaccine oh, for COVID-19 has something in it that only resonates when 5G signals are nearby. And what it does is it creates these types of headaches inside people. So using the airwaves as a way to actually get to your head. <laughs> I see. Well, that, Dude, let's I not put that rumor out there. <laughs> We're making rumors up. Please don't believe us. We're just having a little fun. So I'm like just it. making this shit up. Do you know there's a website where you can hire a hitman? Oh, that's a joke. Oh, okay. It's a joke site. Anyway, the story that I read recently was some woman went to this fucking website and said, yes, I want to hire you to kill my husband. And the guy that runs this joke website had to call the cops and say, I think this woman is serious. And, and they arrested her. That's why I saw the story. Oh, yeah. The woman, the woman who's trying to pay 5,000 bucks to get, the, get her husband hit. Yeah, yeah. Rent, rentahitman.com. Rentahitman. Thank you. Can you can you believe, you know, I can see why for fun you'd you'd start rentahitman.com. It's actually quite a funny website. But like somebody Googled, how do you hire a hitman? They came up with rentahitman.com and she she filled out the form on the website. <laughs> oh man. Well, someone's charged with solicitation to commit murder. <laughs> yeah, you think? <laughs> So uh, what's going to happen in enterprise technology over the next 24 to 36 months, right? Oh, I think the, the big trends are, are here and they're being accelerated, right? We, we see contactless commerce, digital payments, you know, buy online pickup in the curb, drop, you know, to your house, put it into a safe box. You know, that, that's big, big. If you don't have a digital channel, you are out of the game. Uh, the second piece, automation and AI, uh, you know, we've got to answer four big questions and every single business process, you've got to ask the question, when do I fully automate with a machine uh, and trustful automation, intelligent automation? When do I augment that machine with a human? Because, you know, machines don't always get it right and we need nuance and need to understand the context and why we make exceptions. Uh, when do we augment the human 
with a machine so that we can actually make faster decisions. And then when do we trust humans for judgment, right? So, so that, that's going to take a big chunk of figuring out where that automation occurs. Uh, I think the third part is what we're kind of talking about earlier, why the digital giants are doing so well. And it's really about digital monetization models, right? From advertising to search, to subscriptions, to memberships, to goods and services, they all play a role. And I think if you're a business that they doesn't have so have, many ways to make money, don't they? They do. And, and, and they don't, right? I mean, the one that always baffles me and when we're talking about digital giants is Facebook. I mean, yeah, they, they do ads, right? But, but why don't they monetize anything? Why don't they do commerce? What happened there? Right. So, so it's, it's things like know. that, you know, I'm always amazed too with LinkedIn that they don't do more on monetization. Oh my God. I have a whole chapter of LinkedIn in my book. I mean, it's like, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I don't get it. how LinkedIn became so successful. I mean, I'm, I'm happy for them. I think it's a good service, but there's so many things that it could do that it doesn't do. I don't know. I, I don't get it. They thought they're a marketing and media company when like they could charge a dollar an API just to verify I went to the school or have the skill or had this job and make a ton more on that. Something. I, I mean, they're not even using their graph. Right. I should have a blockchain ID on LinkedIn that, you know, I can build my skills on and take it anywhere. I mean, I could, could totally missed out on this. Like, oh, we're a media company. Oh, we're a training company. Why haven't they bought master class? Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, they could be the, the biggest corporate education company on the planet overnight. I don't know. Well, they bought Linda, I guess. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> so, but it didn't really, you know, you know, I, you know what I think is this. I mean, I didn't know why they didn't do any of this shit when they were independent. Now that they're part of Microsoft, I sort of get it because uh, I don't This is my theory. You're smarter about this than I am. My theory goes like this. Microsoft bought LinkedIn really for one reason, which is Microsoft makes software for knowledge workers. LinkedIn is the number one database of knowledge workers on planet Earth, what they're doing, what they're learning, what their titles are what certifications they're taking, who's out of work, who's getting work, wh what job titles are growing, what job titles are shrinking. And so if you make software for knowledge workers and you have the, a real-time database telling you what's going on in knowledge workers' careers, that might be valuable. Um, when we get off the show, I'll, I'll tell you the kind of the background real story <laughs> so I don't get into any trouble. Uh, it, it was a pissing okay, match. Great. It was why how they ended up with LinkedIn. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> so, no and somebody wanted to be on the no. board and they didn't get a board position. So they ended up choosing Microsoft over the other bidder. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> that, that's really what happened there. Well, they're not inviting me to be on the board of Microsoft either either. Yeah, no, um, I think we'd, we'd do some good. <laughs> I think it should be on the board. I think uh, you would be great on the board of Microsoft. Uh, <laughs> and I think John Thompson's a great guy. I don't know him personally. I have some friends who know him and everything I've ever heard about him uh, from people who know him is that he's an extraordinary guy. And I think it's probably hard to argue that Satya Nadella hasn't done a wonderful job. I mean, who would have thought a few years ago that Microsoft was going to be a trillion dollar market cap company? They were they were lost in the woods. I know they're they're the part of the gamma trade. I mean, trillion dollars right there. John Thompson is a wonderful guy. I, I did meet him once or twice uh, at Churchill Club, and uh, definitely someone good. But mm. dude, when, when are we going to get Chris Lockhead for Congress? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I I got into a big uh, battle with the county over COVID and some other things lately and a lot of people said i should i should run for public office i i i don't have that temperament right 
Oh, that's There's part no of way. it. I that's just the whole point. Whole, I just call it like it spend is. Spend a lot of time swearing at people. Call it like it is. The one people want authenticity. They want people to actually represent them, not like someone else, right? They, they want people that support residents. They want people that you know believe in communities, that believe in bridging the gap, that don't subscribe to already preset notions. I mean, we're stuck in a state that's one party, just like Texas is one party, and people don't get their voices across. It's as everyone's squashed or mm-hmm. you know they just fall in line just so that they could get elected to the next higher office. And, and we need real people out there. And, and Chris, you're one of them. Well, that's very kind of you to say. What what I do hope I can contribute is I think real people have real conversations. And there are people that I absolutely love who are staunch supporters of the president and plan to vote for him again. And these are good people who do great things in the world, who are smart, who are awesome. And I know people who are, uh, you know, in the in the Bernie slash uh, AOC wing, if you will, of the Democratic Party. And I would say exactly the same thing about them. And, and I learned something recently, Ray, about this from, from David uh, Crane when he was on the podcast. What we need to do a lot more of is be very specific about issues and then do that at the state level. Because he what he said is, the average American doesn't know their state senator when in point of fact, much more about what affects your life and my life is who runs our city, our county and our state. And so his point was at whatever level you're getting involved, get specific, you know, is, is, is the problem you want to address school funding? Well, if it is, you got to dig into the school budget. You understand where the school budget goes. Cause he said that the teachers union, knows the school budget. So if you want to impact school spending and investment and so forth, you got to know it the way the teachers union knows it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so what hopefully I can be a voice for is thoughtful discussion, because I think Democrats and Republicans, of which I am neither, uh, yell at each other at 30,000 feet. And what we need to do is, you know, pick a topic, healthcare, something that I know is near and dear to your heart. We need to have a conversation about specificity. When somebody gets sick or hurt in our world, what do we want to have happen? And we can argue about how we pay for it and the infrastructure and ecosystem around. We can talk about all those things, but we got to get into the specifics. We can't just say, oh, we don't want social medicine or or we don't, you know, whatever your position is. We got to get into the details. Same thing with guns. Same thing with immigration. Same thing with the environment. You know, same thing now, of course, with the social unrest that we have and the, the justice breakthrough and equality breakthrough that we want to see happen in our country for people of color. You know, I, I think each of those issues, I try to do this on Twitter, right? And, and what happens is that I get attacked on both ends. And so like you, like, you know, I can't say I'm staunch one way or the other. Um, you take an issue, like we're like, should we reopen the schools or not? You know, one side's like yelling at me like, hey, you're crazy. Why would you open the schools? And I'm like, well, look at the data around the rest of the world. The other side's, hey, you know, we got to worry about school safety and the kids are going to die. And like, here's the data here, right? And it was interesting, right? I mean, I've gotten to a point where my Twitter followers are actually pretty cool. They know to have a logical argument uh, and to check their emotions at the door and to check any political rhetoric. And we actually get some good conversations. It's a lot of work. It's a That's lot of powerful. work. That's powerful. 
right? But but I think it's it's helpful, right? People are like, oh, okay, so this is why you feel this way, right? Teachers are really scared to go into school, right? Because they might get something and they're frontline workers. What do we do, right? And then on the other hand, you know, you have like parents who are like, I can't go to work unless my kids actually show up to school, right? So I, I need something open, right? Or I'm worried about child development or, or people in public health who are worried and they're like, uh, you know, the childhood beatings are going up and, you know, people aren't getting food because they used to get their only meal at school or they're not getting and their learning disabilities are getting worse because they haven't, you know, been mm-hmm. been seen by a teacher that can help them or psychologist at school. Right. And so, so like right. you suddenly get all the issues and then people don't take that one little issue and like magnify it to be like 10 times more important than it is. And, and, and you're right. We don't have that honest dialogue. We don't have people that are willing to take that dog because people are already hardened into positions. And if you can just step back just a little bit, uh, it's actually very interesting. I've learned so much on Twitter. I mean, I've learned so much from people there and mm. people think I'm insane. They're like, well, why are you, why are you being controversial? I'm like, no, I'm kind of curious as to what the answer is here because there is no answer at this moment. We don't know, right? But I'm curious to how you feel. I'm curious to what the science might be or where the science might be heading. Uh, and, you know, where are people getting their data points and what, who, what, who and what influences them? And, and that's been very powerful. Yes. And the other thing that I do enjoy on social media, and you know, I get whacked for, for it some sometimes. I got whacked pretty hard by uh, uh, the mask crew that think, thinks it's a it's it's his pathway to tyranny. Um, <laughs> you haven't been kicked off t- t- Twitter yet either. <laughs> no, but I mean, I just said put on a fucking mask, and the reason I did is a friend of mine who's a Stanford doc sent me a bunch of stuff that at the time was not known. The CDC subsequently came out and said the same thing, which is essentially if America wore a mask for eight weeks, we'd have this thing under control. And when my doctor friend told me this, I was like, well, why isn't this more, you know, widely shared? So I posted some stuff and and took a beating on social media, on LinkedIn. Actually, interestingly enough, on LinkedIn, the LinkedIn guys, as the beating started, they deleted all of it. And so if you look at that post I put up on LinkedIn, that's been seen by like 40,000 fucking people by now. <laughs> yeah, incredible. They took all the negativity out, but on Facebook and some other play and Twitter, it was still there. And, you know, people emailed and said, we're no longer listening to the show and then all this sort of stuff. So you wade into these things, but I don't, I don't care about that stuff. I care about hopefully trying to shine a light. And, and to your point, you know, there's a segment of our population that I think needs a light shined on it right now that hasn't had it enough, I think. And it's one I'm worried about, which is our mothers. Mm, Best yeah. I can tell, if you're a mom and whether you uh, have a, a job outside the home or not, um, the reality is the pressure on you. Has, and I've been asking all the moms in my life, most of them are saying about 25% more pressure on them because of homeschooling, um, because of the fact that, you know, maybe they're now working from home. If they have a job, their husband is working from home. And so I'm just, I'm worried about our moms. I, the moms I know were praying that they were, the kids were going back to school and now it doesn't look like that's going to happen in huge parts of the country. And I just think, a lot of our moms are under tremendous pressure right now. Yeah, no, without a doubt. I mean, and anyone who's in, in a parenting capacity, right? Especially when you when school will kind of off loaded, you know, your ability to actually get some more work done or go to work or downtime, you know, or or take care of an uh you know, some people are in sandwich generation too, take care of an elder relative. Yes. 
So, I mean, it's, it's, it's been brutal. And if you have elder relatives, if your folks are around or still alive and nearby, you know, you're worried about them getting COVID. So on one hand, you're making sure grandma and grandpa are okay and they're not getting sick and they're getting their groceries delivered and, 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 and at the same time, you're trying to figure out you didn't have any school summer camps and shit. And, you know, like I've been teaching my nieces and nephews to play guitar over zoom and trying to, trying to be part of the kids' lives in my life or because I understand some of these dynamics, or at least I'm trying to understand some of these dynamics. But, you know, you, uh, a summer where you could not take them to very many activities heading into a school season where they're not going to go back physically, it's a lot of pressure in the household that wasn't there in February. <laughs> no, it is brutal. And and we actually think this is going to go on till about March, April. I mean, this is just, you know, it's, it's going to linger. So you think we lose the school year in a lot of the country? I think that parents who are very concerned about their education are going to push for more homeschooling, build their own pods um, that that can afford to do that. Uh, I'm actually more worried that the gap between those who can do that and those who can't are going to exacerbate the problems we have already. Uh, I think that's the bigger concern. So I I think most half the country is not going to be able to go to school uh, in the the traditional sense uh, and in in that these dense areas, more cases are going to cause fear uh, across the board in terms of, you know, of, of being able to open the schools and, and the science might, science will be there to say, oh my God, you know, this, this is, you know, we've got a high number of cases. And then some people are just going to go to school and say, we're going to take a mortal risk and we're going to go, right? Kids, kids don't have that transmission. The data shows X and Y, and that's moving data. So you don't know for sure. Uh, so I think we're going to see a lot more experimentation again. I mean, just like what we've done. But the interesting thing that we've noticed is the countries that were praised for doing a great job, you know, controlling COVID-19, they're getting reinfections again. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the scary part. And I think people are watching that more carefully and understand why, why is that happening? You know, places that were supposedly under control are not under control anymore and, and cases are popping up again. So, so I think that's where we're going to learn a lot. So, And there still seems to be a lot of ambiguity around reinfection rates and the possibility of, you know, once you had it, how easy is it to get again? And, you know, do the antibodies stay with you for long? And there's still, I don't know, maybe you know better than me because you're way smarter and plugged in than I am. But it seems there's a lot of ambiguity there, too. I mean, if you look at the way the vaccine development's going, there's multiple paths that they're taking. So you get the mRNA viruses, the immunotherapies, right? The HIV-related type drugs that have played a role like rendesivir for Gilead, uh, Moderna with the, you know, mRNA, and then other folks with immunotherapies, and then, you know, the traditional pharmas like, you know, AstraZeneca or J&J and Pfizer, right? So those folks are pumping out, you know, different models. And, And there's eight eight or nine different ways that you're trying to attack this problem because they don't know what the answer is. <laughs> That's really what it comes down to. Yeah. So, yeah. so hopefully one of these eight or nine like takes hold and, and, and it works and the virus doesn't mutate in between. I mean, that, that's really what people mm. are wondering what's going on. So yeah. from your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, All right, Ray. Hey, anything else you want to touch on? Yeah. Let's talk about something fun. Yeah, okay. What? <laughs> yep. So, okay. Let's talk about something fun. <laughs> let's talk about something fun, right? Like that, the, uh, more uplifting in the sense that, you know, I know there's Zoom fatigue, virtu- you know, virtual meeting fatigue, but one of the coolest things I've been seeing over the last couple of weeks is these small gatherings that are happening where, you know, you might do a virtual wine tasting, you might do a cheese tasting, mm-hmm. a master chai, ma- you know, a chai master shows up, right? A master chocolatier comes into the room and, and people are getting together. 
right? And so it's like 20, 30 people. Someone comes, does a little small talk. You know, they ship this stuff out to your house a couple, you know, like a week before people get together and have a chance to talk. I think there's one where like people are showing you how to make it. How do you really make a New York strip steak, right? And so steak <laughs> sent to your house. These things are being done. So so there's there's movement here, right? We're seeing people trying to find ways to be more social in the digital world and, and create experiences. And, and I, I think that's pretty fun and powerful. Well, I'll tell you, um, it would not have occurred to me in a pre- C-19 world to teach my uh, niece and nephew to play guitar over Zoom. It would not have. Um, And so now I do that. It's a thing I do regularly and we get, you know, plus or minus an hour together. And I, of course, adore them tremendously. And and they're learning. Like it's, it's an amazing thing to see a kid progress on an instrument, you know, and I, I don't know, I'm not a professional guitar teacher, far from it. I make a noise on a guitar at best, but they seem to be learning at a pretty good pace to me and we're, they can now change chords and we're going to start learning some songs now. And it's like, Hey, this is really fucking cool. And we never would have done that before. <laughs> no, it's pretty cool. I've seen some interesting things like Fender has that thing with the, uh, app. Oh, I love that. You. It's a, uh, yeah, there's some great stuff. So the the, the app. It's really cool. Fender Play. That's what and, it was. Um, Fender Play. So. Fender Play. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love all that stuff. And I love all these new paradigms of of learning and teaching and sharing content. You know, I'm working with a, uh, a genius 27, 28-year-old copywriter named Cole Schaefer on creating uh, my first online marketing guide. And it's sort of, uh, I don't know, a some kind of a book slash digital experience thing that he's, you know, helping create because he's a genius. And it's like, this is a, this is a level of creativity around content creation. I don't think I would have got to in a pre C19 world. And so, yeah, I think this environment is allowing us an opportunity to experiment with all kinds of new technologies and new approaches on, on stuff professionally and personally. And I, I, that part of it, I think has been very, very cool. You know, I heard that episode. That was great, man. It's a honey copy, right? Something like that. Honey copy. Yep. Yeah. The OG of copywriting, Cole Schaefer. I can remember that. Yeah. Actually, I should send you the beta version of the, this new marketing guide. I wouldn't, I'd love your feedback on it. And who knows? It may, it may, his creativity may spark some things in terms of the way you folks do reports and stuff. It's, it's cool. It's, it's, it's not a book. It's not a, I don't know what the fuck to call it, but it's, it's, it's a great digital presentation of content. That's, that's the only, that, in a cool experience. So um, it's been, a, and it's, it's fun for me to clap. Like I'm a collaborator, right? I've, all my books have been with co-authors. Of course, you know, Heather closely and um, you know, my podcasts are a collaboration with an awesome group of folks. And anyway, it's, it's just cool to be working with, in this case, a, a legendary young guy on a creative new pursuit. No, it's awesome, man. It, there's so much good in the world uh, and we don't spend enough time talking about it. So this is amazing. So, oh man, love you, man. <laughs> That's I love I you say. too. You're, you're awesome. I'm so glad you're in the world. I love everything about you. <laughs> <laughs> keep doing it and please come back soon dude anytime anytime for you thank you brother take care there he is the number one tech analyst in the world ray wong with us again thank you so much for ray now my friends at splunk are the leaders in data to everything d to e they help you bring data to every question every decision and every action 
and organizations across the globe are relying on Splunk maybe more now than ever to modernize and strengthen their cyber defenses. You see, as part of uh, Data to Everything, Splunk is a powerful security platform used by some of the world's most sophisticated organizations to monitor, detect, respond, and resolve digital security threats. Visit Splunk.com slash D2E, as in Data to Everything. That's Splunk.com slash D2E. Additionally, um, look, we all need all the help we can get to succeed and hopefully to build stronger businesses going forward. And that's where my friends at Oracle NetSuite come in. Because NetSuite is the number one cloud business system for entrepreneurial businesses, focusing on areas such as finance, HR, inventory, and multi-channel e-commerce. With uh, NetSuite, you can manage every penny with precision. So whether you're doing a million dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars, NetSuite gives you the visibility and control that you need more than ever right now. And recently, they put together a great guide uh, based on insights from many uh, business leaders called The 7 Actions Businesses Need to Take Now. Visit netsuite.com slash different to get your free guide. That's netsuite.com slash different. All right, we would like to thank, of course, the incredible Ray Wong. You can visit him at constellationr.com. That's constellationr.com. And if you're not watching uh, or consuming his internet TV show, Disrupt TV, you should do that. It's a lot of fun. His co-host, Vala Ashar from Salesforce is awesome. Vala was on the podcast uh, a little while back, uh, episode 116. You can check that out as well. The nonprofit OneLifeFullyLive.org, helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out. My friends at Spiro are the sales app that helps you use the power of AI to close more business. Check out Spiro.ai. Um, <laughs> don't forget Ray's book, Disrupting Digital Business, wherever you get legendary books. My friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years, and they will help you conquer your category with a legendary website. Visit atre.net. And look, we all know uh, many of us are going through a difficult time right now. If you can make a difference to a faith-based organization, to a charity, to a food bank, now's the time to dig deep into that wallet. All right, I need to remind you that uh, this podcast is only for people who value real different conversations and is the sole property of the Lockhead Podcast Network. We are never t- tested on GMOs. Remember uh, to spread podcasts, not viruses. We are produced by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo, the greatest of all time. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Jamie J and Sarah Knox are dear friends and they do legendary technical awesomeness around here, including Lockhead.com. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Listen to The Tragically Hip. Support your local businesses. There's a tremendous amount of bankruptcies going on right now in small and local businesses. Now's the time to do what you can. If you love a local business, show them some love. Thank you so much to all of our healthcare heroes. I know we all appreciate you tremendously. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Greg Clark, former CEO of Symantec. Sorry, Greg, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. We're out of here. Thank you so much. Please stay safe. Take good care of each other. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.